Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ashley Barrett-Clough, conservation medicine veterinarian at the National Marine Mammal Foundation. I'm really excited for this conversation because Dr. Barrett-Clough studies both free-ranging bottlenose dolphins as well as the U.S. Navy's dolphins to study important conservation topics. Dr. Barrett-Clough recently published a paper that uses blood and skin samples to estimate an animal's age. The study has huge implications for populations of dolphins as well as potentially other species of marine mammals across the world. I'm super excited to talk about this paper, so without further ado, hi Ashley, welcome to Aquadox. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Absolutely. And I'm really excited to talk about this paper that you recently published because it just has so many implications for both managed care and wild cetaceans and potentially even more than that. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, can you describe to our listeners what it means to you to be a conservation medicine veterinarian? Yes, absolutely. So I'm working with the National Marine Mammal Foundation. And as a conservation medicine veterinarian, my focus is primarily with free ranging cetaceans. So we want to do quite a lot of work with translational medicine. So basically techniques that we're learning on dolphins, which are in managed care that we can then apply to free ranging dolphins to try and improve our understanding of not only the individual health, but the population health as well. And so your day-to-day then, is it mostly based on going out in looking at these free-ranging dolphins, doing health assessments? Are you in a lab? Like, what does that kind of look like? I guess it depends on whether there's a global pandemic or not as to what that looks like. Yeah, that could affect lots of things. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In an ideal world, it would certainly involve more of the going out on the water and assessing the dolphins in person and the dolphin health assessments. Unfortunately, like many of my colleagues have experienced over the last few years, all of these fantastic fieldwork opportunities have been postponed. But this year is going to be great. And we're going to have lots of fieldwork opportunities to basically catch up on the last few years of health assessments that we've missed out on. But my job is pretty varied. It can involve the fast-paced health assessment days where we are out on the water and we're physically handling these dolphins and performing veterinary examinations on them. And it can also involve the data analysis after the fact and trying to understand what we've learned from these health assessments, as well as synthesize that into peer-reviewed publications. So as you know, one of the main ways that we can expand upon our science and our knowledge is to try and publish our findings. And so I've switched gears and gone from being a predominantly clinical veterinarian over the last 10 years to now being a predominantly research veterinarian. So I'm expanding on my science skills and uh, applying my clinical knowledge to hopefully improve our understanding from a conservation perspective of the wild animals now. Very cool. And today we're going to focus a little bit more on the publishing side. And we're going to be looking at a recent paper that you published in August of 2021 called Accurate Epigenetic Aging in Bottlenose Dolphins, an Essential Step in the Conservation of At-Risk Dolphins. So before we get into it, what are the main findings from this paper? Why is it so important? So the main finding in this paper is that we were able to age these dolphins via epigenetics. Basically, we wanted to be able to find a way to accurately estimate the age of bottlenose dolphins by using their DNA. So 
from a blood or skin sample. So the ultimate aim is to be able to age dolphins in the wild remotely by taking a skin biopsy sample, which is really revolutionary from the perspective of the current method to age dolphins is looking at the growth layer groups in a tooth. And so the invasive nature of a tooth extraction versus a skin biopsy should hopefully improve our knowledge of the dolphin's age and be able to apply this more readily to free-ranging populations. So ideally, we wouldn't need to actually have the dolphin in hand and perform a physical examination on them to be able to then estimate their age. Super cool. And on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the process of collecting blood from dolphins, and you're essentially taking this to a whole new level here. So what led you to specifically thinking about skin and blood samples for this project? So we first started to look at age in these tissue parameters to extrapolate on what's been done in the human field. So one of our collaborators, Dr. Steve Horvath at the Clock Foundation, he was instrumental in producing the first epigenetic clock in humans, which allows us to age a human by a tissue sample. And this has been used forensically to basically look at DNA from blood or skin at a crime scene to be able to work out the age of the person who was there, which can obviously then reduce the wide range of people that you could be looking for as a perpetrator in that situation. And so we'd read papers from the human perspective, and we were wanting to try and find a way to improve the accuracy of aging bottlenose dolphins and improve the accessibility of it. So despite the tooth aging being used pretty widespread over the last several decades that dolphins have been aged, we wanted to be able to do it remotely and to be able to work out the ages of dolphins that were having skin biopsies performed. And so the rationale for wanting to explore this further and dive into it further stemmed from the research that my colleagues at the National Marine Mammal Foundation had been doing in the Gulf of Mexico at the Deepwater Horizon oil spill site. And so a lot of the questions that were coming up there were to do with reproductive success and reproductive failure. And so one of the important things to establish is how old that individual is and has that animal actually already reached sexual maturity and should be capable of reproducing or are we actually just looking at a six or a seven-year-old dolphin that isn't perhaps capable of that so you kind of lose that information morphometrically because they reach that asymptotic length. So we can't rely on length as an indicator of age and so what we were finding in this area was that the dolphins were appearing shorter than we perhaps expected. And so we weren't sure if their growth was potentially stunted or exactly how old these dolphins were. And so that was the impetus to really dive into this further. And then we were able to dive into the human literature and see what was being done in people, which opened the doors for us to start to apply this to dolphins. And I think what's super cool about this is what you're highlighting there is that this is applicable to dolphins anywhere in the world, especially understudied populations. In comparison, when we had Dr. Randy Wells on in episode 24, Wild Dolphin Health Assessments, he's been studying that population in Sarasota for over 50 years and knows the ages of many of those animals. But your research and this paper is really going to be applicable to a dolphin anywhere. Absolutely. And I think that's what's been really interesting in this research is that 
we're not only trying to apply what we've been able to do in the human field to marine mammals, but we're now being able to apply that in marine mammals in human care and then to their wild counterparts. And I think that as my role as a conservation medicine veterinarian is really rewarding to be able to try and learn as much as possible about the animals in the wild. And even from the basic clinical interpretation of biochemistry and hematology blood results, as, as you know, in small animal, you would expect different results in a puppy as you would in a geriatric dog. And so it's similar to the dolphins where we would expect changes to naturally occur throughout their lifespan. But if we don't know how old that dolphin is, then we can't necessarily accurately interpret those results. So it becomes to be an integral part of all aspects of the health assessment is figuring out how old the dolphin actually is. So I do have a question before we go further into this, because one of your previous research projects was also looking at age, but it was using radiographic images of the dolphin's pectoral flippers to estimate age. So why the transition now to blood? And is it going to be better moving forward to focus more on the blood than the radiographs? Yeah, that's a great question. The publication that we did on the pectoral flipper radiography was really pioneered by my colleague, Dr. Daniel Garcia at Oceanographic in Valencia. So he came up with the concept of the growth plates changing over time and being able to correlate those changes with specific ages. So I worked with him to finalize the publication and we basically came up with a formula where we can provide a score to a radiograph, which can then be inputted into the model, which will actually then predict an age for the dolphin. And so whilst the method can be applied across the dolphin's full lifespan, once we get into dolphins that are say over 20 years of age, we're actually dependent upon the degenerative osteoarthritic changes there. And so the method is incredibly accurate in young dolphins. So if you've got a dolphin less than five years of age, we can really estimate the actual age within a few months because these growth plates are changing so rapidly and so sequentially that it's really easy to predict how old the animal is. So from a stranding perspective, it's a lot easier to be able to just take a quick radiograph of the pectoral flipper and know pretty quickly, are you dealing with a two-year-old or a four-year-old? Obviously, morphometrics are pretty accurate at that age as well. But I think what's interesting is actually that the different methods are seemingly more accurate at different age demographics. So I would actually recommend using the pectoral flipper radiographs in the very young dolphins, because I think that's actually going to be more precise. However, the epigenetic aging, where it's advantageous, is that it is equally accurate across the full lifespan. So, spoiler alert, the paper found that we're able to predict the age epigenetically within two and a half years of the actual age across the full lifespan. And so this was including dolphins as old as 58 years old. The pectoral flipper radiography wouldn't be able to do that level of accuracy in the older animals. At that point, we're probably looking at plus or minus five years, which is still pretty accurate. But as far as wanting to kind of dial it in as specifically as possible, I think the epigenetics is going to be more useful across the full lifespan. But as far as actual time to results as well, the pectoral flipper radiography, you could have a result within a half an hour of taking the radiograph, whereas obviously the epigenetics, you've got to go through the 
DNA extraction process and the methylation profiling, and that could actually take several months. So I think from a stranding perspective, the PECRADs are probably going to be the best method as far as accessibility goes. And it's really nice too for our international colleagues that you can take an x-ray and just share the radiograph digitally and get a result rather than being worried about permits and shipping samples and tissue samples and the kind of more complexities that, that go along with that. So there are advantages and disadvantages, I think, to both of the techniques. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it's super cool, the diversity of options available. So is this current epigenetic option, is that something that people at facilities around the world are going to be able to access? Is that something they have to send samples to you? How does that work? That's a good question. Right now, it's still really quite embryonic. It's not commercially available to just have anybody send in a sample. One of the challenges that we're dealing with is that the plate size that we run the samples on uh, and which we effectively pay for is the 96 well plate. So if you just had a handful of samples, you don't want to be paying for 96 to only get the results back on five. So I think because this is a really new area of the science and the research, it's likely to just expand and become more available in the future. And then it may be that you could submit one or two samples. The people that we've been collaborating with, they actually have their own foundation, which is called the Clock Foundation. And they're exploring this in many different species, not just in marine mammals. So I think over time, it's going to become more available, whereas right now we're still pioneering it. So it's still really a research tool at the moment rather than a kind of easy stranding response option. So it's something that we will have to catch up with you maybe in a few years about to see where we can go with that. Hopefully, yes. Yeah. So let's transition a bit to talk about the actual process of the epigenetic aging. Can you walk us through the process from sample collection to reading out the age of the dolphin and what happens during that process? Yes, absolutely. So we've basically worked it backwards in the sense of what we needed to do to establish the epigenetic aging clock was to know the ages of the dolphins already that we were feeding into that to then be able to work out which areas of the DNA are associated with aging. So we worked with the dolphins at the Navy Marine Mammal Program, many of which were born at the program. So we have an exact date of birth on. And we were able to submit samples from 26 different dolphins. And so these samples were able to be taken longitudinally as well. Some dolphins, five samples per dolphin were actually submitted. So we knew the exact intervals between when these samples were taken. And so what we could do was submit the samples that are of known age and then basically work backwards to work out the areas of the DNA that are methylated in correlation with the chronological age. So to define what epigenetics is, for those of you that are less familiar, which I certainly was less familiar with it before I embarked on this project, epi basically means on top of. And so we're looking at changes on top of the genome. So we're specifically looking at methylation, which is back to the horrendous organic chemistry days, the addition of CH3 molecules that attach to specific areas in the DNA. And so if you remember back to all of your base pairs, we're looking specifically at the site phosphate guanine areas. So the CPG sites is what it's called. We look at the degree of methylation of the CPG sites. And we know of areas of the DNA or specific CPG sites that are associated with aging. And so a degree of methylation over time is normal, right? We're all 
methylating constantly our DNA. And so what we needed to try and establish to start with is what's normal and what is correlated with chronological aging. And the reason I'm referring to it as chronological aging is that we also have this concept known as biological aging, which is more of an indication of your overall health. So to put it example forward, if we had twins that were say 35 years old, we know that their DNA is identical. We could have a twin that is suffering from a lot of health concerns that has heart disease, is struggling uh, with their health. And we could have a twin that is running marathons and doing really well. And so if we know that their DNA is identical, yeah, their lifestyles are very, very different. How do we explain how this change has occurred over time? And that's basically to do with the epigenome. So changes in your lifestyle, such as your exercise level, your diet, whether you drink a lot, whether you smoke a lot, all of these things can change your DNA over time. And so these are the things that can contribute to age acceleration. So that's when you have a biological age, which is older than your chronological age. So say the 35 year old twin that isn't very healthy, perhaps has a biological age of 45, whereas the twin that is very healthy, very active, could potentially have a biological age that's lower at 30. And so one of the concepts that we're really wanting to explore from a veterinary and health standpoint is whether the dolphins that we're dealing with in the wild are showing signs of age acceleration and could changes in their environments or environmental stresses actually be contributing to changes in their DNA. Wow, that's super cool. <laughs> so can certain environmental parameters such as, let's say, oil spills or changes in temperature, salinity, whatever, is that altering the amount of and placement of the methyl groups? Or is that something that's just within the body and it's affecting other things instead? That's a great question. And I think we don't know the answer yet, but I dare say that the answer is potentially both. And so right now we're focused on the methyl groups because we know that they can basically turn genes off. So we're seeing changes because of the increased methylation there, but there could also be changes occurring in the body due to exposure to those stresses or toxins as well. So teasing those two things apart is going to be really challenging, but that's one of the things that we're hoping to be able to do. And so you referred previously to our colleague, Dr. Randy Wells, and he's got this amazing longitudinal study of the Sarasota dolphin. So not only does he know the age of these dolphins, but could also be pretty confident in their health status as well. And so one of the areas of the next phase of this research, and hopefully the next publication is going to be really focusing in on biological age and comparing dolphins that we know are in an environmentally compromised area with dolphins that are in a healthy area and seeing what changes are occurring in their DNA. And can we actually pinpoint that to the environmental stresses? And so Right now, the research has been very focused on chronological age and can we actually age these dolphins and use the age to interpret all of the biological information. But the next phase of the project is to try and work out, can we actually see whether age acceleration is occurring in some of these animals? And so 
Again, we're going to be relying pretty heavily on the Navy marine mammal population because these dolphins are fortunate enough to be having veterinary examinations practically every day. And we know their health status day in, day out. We can actually use animals that we could say are chronically very, very healthy animals. They have longitudinally not had any health concerns versus an animal that's potentially had some compromised health. The challenge is that because these animals are receiving veterinary care, as soon as they so much as sneeze, quote unquote, was they receive attention, right? So in the wild, a dolphin that has effectively been exposed to, say, an oil spill and developed lung lesions and then developed pneumonia and didn't receive any treatment or any care, we're going to see a much greater level of disease progression in those animals than animals that are in human care receiving veterinary treatment. And so we need to try and compare and contrast the sick animals from the wild with the healthy animals that we know don't have any problems and then try and dial in their DNA and figure out the areas that are potentially associated with those specific pathologies or specific stresses. And I know the Navy dolphins and the free-ranging dolphins were both bottlenose dolphins, which is just one species. So is the hope when you're talking about looking at other populations, are you going to limit it specifically to bottlenose dolphins or are you going to expand it to some of the other dolphin species? So we're actually already working with some colleagues down in Brazil, which have a group of bottlenose dolphins called the Lahils bottlenose dolphin. So there's a lot of debate whether they're a, a subspecies or a separate species, but we'll call them a subspecies for now. And they actually show some unique anatomical differences from the bottlenose dolphins that we're more used to seeing but uh, very, very similar. And so they're actually the first species that we're wanting to branch this research out to, to try and find out the ages, because this population is extremely small and it's currently very threatened. So they estimate that there's only around 600 individuals left. So from a endangered species standpoint, learning as much as we can about this population, what is the demographic that we're dealing with, what is their health status, it could be really pivotal to their conservation. And so we're actually looking at branching out to them first, because we want to try and apply this from a conservation perspective. But theoretically, it is actually going to be applicable to cetaceans in general. So we're very, very focused on the bottlenose dolphin in particular right now. And I think that having a species specific clock will inevitably increase your accuracy than just having a cetacean clock. However, that's going to allow us to apply this to different species in the future. And so then we're going to have a lot more interesting application if we were looking at species such as the southern resident killer whales or the North Atlantic right whales. And species species that are really critically endangered and we need to try and understand as much as possible with. And so these populations have, again, amazing photo identification studies and really dedicated people that have worked with them for decades. So the question is potentially no longer going to be what is their chronological age, but what is their biological age and how healthy are these whales that we're trying so hard to try and conserve. I think that's where the future of the epigenetics in the marine mammal world is going to go. And I think you just hinted on it, but I want to press a little further here because you're talking about looking at some of these populations like the Southern resident killer whales, where you want to know more about their overall health. How is age and knowing their biologic age actually going to help you accomplish that? 
I think the main way is going to be from a reproductive standpoint. So we know with the southern resident killer whales that we've not been seeing the growth in the population that we would like to see for the population recovery. And so it's a very complex interplay of multitude of different factors as to why that could be. But one of the things that we need to understand is, are these animals potentially reaching reproductive senescence or has age acceleration pushed them to a point where they're not able to be successfully reproducing anymore? can that give us a bit more information as to why these whales are not actually reproducing versus it just being that their PCB levels are through the roof and they're nutritionally challenged or whatever the health concerns that they're actually dealing with. And so I think that the age acceleration or the biological aging standpoint will try and help us to determine whether there is another factor as to why some of these reproductive rates are not where we would like them to be. As we know in people, if you're 40 years old trying to have a baby versus if you're 20 years old, there's a lot more challenges associated with that. And so hypothetically, if we had a whale that was actually 30 and should be capable of reproducing, but biologically was more like 45 or 50, we're then potentially going to see more challenges. And so right now it's still all very hypothetical and it is just a very academic question, but I would like to think in the future that we're really just scratching the surface with epigenetics and marine mammals at the moment. And if we can learn all of this from just a remote biopsy, then species that we've not been able to handle and learn a lot about their health previously, we can hopefully open up some more doors to improve our understanding of what's going on. And I should have asked this earlier, but since you were just mentioning again, that a lot of these come from remote biopsies, and that's the novelty of this is that you don't have to be hands-on with an animal to get these skin and blood samples. Can you describe to our listeners the process of collecting those samples? Yes. So for the remote biopsy sample, it would be a core biopsy that would take a section of skin and blubber. So we wouldn't be obtaining a blood sample remotely. It would just be the skin and blubber sample. And so that was actually why we started out in this paper with the blood samples in the dolphins, because we wanted to get the highest quality DNA to establish the technique. And then we switch to applying it to skin because we think that's what's going to be most applicable moving forward. And so the animal basically continues about its day as normal. The boat will actually just approach the animal to a distance that would allow a dart to be fired. But uh, it basically just takes a small punch biopsy. So similar in small animal medicine, if, if you were taking a skin biopsy from a dog and you had the little five millimeter punch or eight millimeter punch biopsies, it shoots into the animal and it's attached to a flotation device. So then it can be actually retrieved back by the biologists that have taken the, the punch biopsy. And so the animal would obviously feel it because we're not able to provide any kind of local anesthetic that we would actually do when we're doing the biopsies during the health assessments. In that situation, we take a slightly larger piece and we will actually put lidocaine around the site so that the dolphin won't feel anything. But the dolphins basically have a punch of skin and blubber taken out of, we usually aim for a site, their lateral body wall, just caudal to the dorsal fin. And there's been quite a few published studies showing how quickly the sites can heal and the dolphins often react very, very minimally to being hit by the dart. And so it's seen as one of the least stressful and least invasive ways of, of obtaining a, a biological sample and they can just continue to swim on and go about their day. Well, thank you for that explanation. I know it really helped me picture more of what that process is like collecting samples. And before I let you go, I kind of want to circle back to what we first started out with, which is your role as a conservation medicine veterinarian. So for those students who are listening, who are still trying to figure out clinical research, 
what do I do with my life? How did you manage to switch gears from being a very clinical veterinarian to a veterinary scientist? And do you have any advice for those listening? Well, that's a good question. My advice is to be open to the opportunities and to see what comes your way. Like this was certainly not where I necessarily envisaged my career going. And having worked in mixed animal practice, you know, doing the cow cesareans at 4am to now doing dolphin epigenetic research, it's like, how do you get from A to B? But For me, I think it was more a case of seizing the opportunities that came my way. And so whilst I really enjoyed the clinical vet work and working in zoos and in aquariums and the individual animal case, I became more fulfilled by the kind of herd health component and the bigger picture component. And, you know, you could stay up all night with the one manatee in the manatee rehab situation, and you can do everything you could possibly do to save that individual. And in an ideal world, it will go back out into the wild and contribute to the population. But the worst case scenario is if that animal doesn't make it and you've poured your heart and soul into it and you've spent so much time and effort learning from potentially that one case, but how can you really apply that knowledge to the bigger picture and to the the larger population? And I think that once I'd spent 10 years in clinical medicine, I kind of got to that point where I really wanted to be able to contribute on a larger level and and appreciate the understanding of of the population medicine and the population health. And so from a student standpoint, I would certainly suggest becoming a competent clinician first, do those internships or take that job in private practice and, you know, learn the clinical skills. How do you do a good ultrasound or be competent at your radiography? Because at the end of the day, even if it is marine mammals that you're focused in and that that's what you want to do, you've still got to be able to have all of those core competencies and skills before you get there. You're going to be applying everything that you've learned in vet school to all of this multitude of species that you're then exposed to. And I think that once you've kind of got some solid clinical years under your belt, there are a lot of options to transition over to the wild animal side. I personally ended up taking a more academic route, which if anybody had said that to me when I was failing through vet school, I wouldn't have believed them. But I ended up doing the master's in wild animal health at the Zoological Society of London and the Royal Veterinary College. And that year just gave me the research education that I hadn't really been able to get whilst going through vet school. And taught me how to be more of a scientist than a veterinarian and combine those skills together. And so I think undertaking some of the academic opportunities at that point then complemented my existing clinical skills. And so I think as a student going through that school now, if your vision and your focus is to be a marine mammal veterinarian at the end of it, I would say enjoy the journey and all of the steps that you go through to get to that point. And that might be your end goal, but there's so much fun and exciting stuff that you can do along the way. And, you know, learning how to do surgery on large animals or dealing with equine colic or that sort of a thing is all just going to stand you in good stead of being a competent marine mammal vet at the other side of it. So I know it can seem a little bit brutal when you're dealing with areas of it that you're potentially not that interested in when you're at vet school, but it does all kind of complement and come together at the end and make it worthwhile. So it's nice to know that there are lots of different opportunities with your veterinary degree. It's so diverse and you can apply it to any niche area that you're interested in. 
Well, that's good to hear because I spent all of last year learning how to breed cows and I took a dairy management course. So I'm glad that's going to come in handy one day. (laughs) I do think that it will. You'll be thanking me at some point. You'll be like, oh yes, this is it. This is where this little skill is going to be applied. Especially if you end up in a more zoo setting, all of the zoo species that you're going to work with that ultimately related to the core five that you've had to learn at vet school. And whether you're dealing with a cow or a horse or whether it's in a carpy or a rhino, you're going to be able to apply some of those skills that you've learned. It's a very interesting career path for sure. Well, great advice and such a fascinating paper. I'm super excited to see where the research continues over the next couple of years. So Dr. Barrett Clough, thank you so much for being on Aquadox. Thank you so much for having me. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. Ashley Barrett-Clough for being on the show this week, our sponsors WAVMA and AAFE, as well as all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you've got an extra moment, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.